0: some common sense. Yes,
1: sir. Any other cars talked to Dan and Grinch, Michael Byerner?
2: We still don't know who pulled the trigger.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon. I want to wish everyone a happy new year. You know, we've been covering this case since the very beginning, the very beginning, of course, being November 13th, when the, the bodies of four Idaho University University students were discovered in their home off campus. It's the cases moving forward. Uh, we None of us could have been Happier when there was an arrest made in this case. Well, where is the case going now? Tomorrow, the first court appearance by the defendant Brian Koberger will occur um, in 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 Pennsylvania, and he has an attorney appointed for the the specific he- hearing. His attorney, um, uh, Jason Allen Labar, he will handle the extradition court appearance. The defendant, Brian Coburg, is expected to waive extradition. And at that point, will he be driven? Will he be flown uh, back to Idaho to uh, start the court process in this? Every day, as the investigation continues, we learn more and more about Brian Koberger. And many of the things that we are finding out are actually quite disturbing, um, we all know that he has an undergraduate degree and a graduate degree from DeSales uh, University in Pennsylvania in, in criminal justice, and he was in fact studying for a Ph.D. Um, at Washington University uh, at the time of these of these murders. Some of his of what he was studying and his behavior. Of course, now that everyone can look at it and know that his DNA was found in the crime scene, can look at it and say his behavior was, is, and was quite bizarre. What everyone is always looking for in these cases, and I'd just like to remind everyone, it's not a necessary element of proving a case, and that is motive. What possibly could have been his motive in this case? And That is very concerning, and juries love to hear motives also. They love to hear, oh, he had this motive, this is what he had. There are also unconfirmed reports that he had, in fact, been stalking uh, a couple of these girls and reconning, following them, uh, specifically planning this crime. That also uh, fits in with who he is. And we had spoken also about he exhibits traits of a of a serial killer. Right now, uh, he's being charged with with four murders. That makes him a mass killer. But has the big question in my mind and a lot of people's minds is, has he ever killed before? We don't know that he has a spotless criminal history, no arrests in his 28-year in his lifetime, no arrests. But does that mean he hasn't killed before? Perhaps now his DNA, that was, um, we don't know exactly how law enforcement obtained it. I'm talking about the exemplar DNA, which they compared against the crime scene. And we use the word surreptitiously. They had followed him for days, perhaps a week, were they able to obtain his DNA surreptitiously and compare it against unidentified DNA in the crime scene? That remains to be seen. We're getting a lot of information also that uh, genetic genealogist um, got a hit on him through familial DNA, which they discovered through genealogical searches. We don't know specifically. That's what's being reported. Um, Joseph Scott Morgan, he is a, uh, a professor and he's one of the really bright people in regards that I've listened to and followed a bit in regards to this case. I'm going to play a little bit of his interview on News Nation right now.
3: There were some incidents at a brewery in Pennsylvania, aggressive flirting with a couple of female bartenders that made them extremely uncomfortable, uncomfortable enough that this information was in the system and was flagged at the door. So is this kind of behavior or track record with women significant as law enforcement builds a case and a profile?
4: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, this is something that needs to be explored thoroughly. And let me give you one more if you like that one.
0: You know, I think this is one of the first times that we're actually, uh, from an investigative standpoint, verifying that his behavior was aggressive and perhaps uh, stalking wise. And this is this is makes this case even more interesting.
4: For me, this case has really struck me recently when we found out about what this guy's age is. He's 28. It's really hard for me to fathom that he's just getting started perpetrating this kind of behavior at 28 years of age.
0: Folks, we had spoke about that. There was an FBI agent, I I think on Fox, who said it would be hard for me to believe that this was his first time out, that his first time out, he slaughtered four people with a knife. That is why we, and uh, this investigation is so important. And, you know, we spoke, we always speak about the CODIS database, and the fact that there's two um, two types of DNA, or I shouldn't say types, two categories. One is offender DNA, which is DNA that's in the CODIS database that is from people that have been arrested for felonies and certain misdemeanors, and based on that fact that DNA is taken by the criminal justice system and goes into the FBI CODIS database, which stands for Combined DNA Index System, the second type of or category of DNA is forensic DNA, and that's the DNA that we are concerned with right now because that is DNA from crime scenes that has not been identified. Could there be DNA from a murder crime scene that belongs to to Brian Koberger that has yet to be identified? Because remember. We said he's never been arrested before. That's one of the interesting things that must be investigated, must be explored.
4: Uh, You know, I'm I'm not inside the room with the police officers making the decisions about this. But they need to take a real long, hard look at his history in Pennsylvania. They need to go to various properties he's lived at. They need to take a look at this guy very, very carefully and see if there's anything that can tie him back to any other instances. You don't get this sudden escalation in violence like this, in my opinion at least, that it seems to be so well thought out.
3: Wow, that's chilling insight. So we know one of the victims was brutally attacked with a knife more than the others. So how do investigators build a case for a motive uh, in this quadruple murder?
4: Well, you know, that's the thing about it. I, I, I'm glad you brought up the idea of motive because, you know, in court, you don't you don't have to prove motive. Uh, but what you do have to prove is that he was the perpetrator of the crime. And, of course, being a forensic scientist, I'm going to rely upon that. I want to know the numbers. I want to know, you know, his connectivity vis-a-vis, any kind of biological tiebacks that there are there. And uh, probably his methodologies that he employed while he was perpetrating these crimes. Again, this goes back to any kind of linear connection he might have in his recent past or distant past and all of these various locations. And those are gonna be specific tiebacks that are gonna be very foundational. Again, motive is not necessary in court. It's great to have, we see it as a device and entertainment, but it's not necessarily something that you have to have in court.
0: Phil Grimaldi, straight out of Brooklyn. You never know when he could just show up out of nowhere. He's uh, he's in the area. Uh, welcome to the show, retired NYPD detective. Phil Grimaldi, how are you doing today, Phil?
2: I'm doing good, uh, Billy. Thank you for having me on. And yeah, th- this case is so riveting. Uh, I heard you talking about motive. I was trying to listen as I was setting up. And I think that, uh, yeah, obviously it's not required uh, in court to get a conviction motive, but uh, I think the motive is starting to come together here. He sounded like he was obsessed, and perhaps there was some type of an interaction with uh, one or two of the victims in this case, and uh, that may have been the uh, reason that he targeted them for these uh, horrific murders.
0: Steffi D., thank you so much for the 1999 Super Chat. Very much appreciated. You know, folks, this is... um, well, a co- well, someone is, was asking in the chat before, what do you think was the piece of evidence that, you know, made him a suspect? And first, the first thing what we said right when it happened was the white Hyundai Elantra. That was the single most important piece of evidence. When that car was caught on video, and, you know, we don't know if it was a ring camera. We know it's been well publicized that that gas station saw it zooming by, at a time consistent with the time around or right after the murders. It was a huge piece of evidence. Now, even though the police put it out, oh, we're looking to speak to the occupants of that car, and they said occupants, and we don't know yet if it was an occupant or occupants. We'll find that out down the road. But we knew right away that that's not a witness car. This is a perpetrator car, and they're really looking for that. So when it came back that there was 22,000 Hyundai Elantras in the state of Idaho that they had to check out, there were ways to narrow that down. And one of the ways was to go to the local colleges, and I'm not saying they did this, but they could have – this could have been one of their investigative tools, was to go and see – how many Elantras were registered, white white Elantras, at the specific colleges in the area. Because everyone that goes to a college has to register their vehicle with security. So that was one way. So they were able to narrow down this car. The second was, and we, this has more or less been confirmed by unofficial sources, is that they put the DNA that they had uh, into a genealogical site. And that comes from C.C. Moore. It comes from a, quite a few reporters. And they got a hit on someone in his family. It could have been his father's DNA could because uh, his father was in the service. I believe he was in the Army. They got a hit, and then they started looking closer and closer, and that's how apparently he became a suspect. Brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant investigative uh, resources, brilliant investigative tools they used. And it's not over, they're still conducting this investigation,
2: Phil. Well, bottom line is that the uh, the vehicle, like you said, that was probably one of the most important pieces of evidence that was made public, that this vehicle was being sought, perhaps was in the area and may have seen so, uh, something or someone. Uh, it sounds like there was a little bit more to it that maybe they felt that this was the perpetrator's vehicle, as you said, Bill, early on. But wherever that video was recovered from, and I believe it was reported that it was from a gas station that the vehicle was speeding by, now you have a direction. You know where the car was coming from, you know where the car was heading. So So again, you would either back up a little bit and look for further video cameras, or you would go forward and look for uh, video cameras in the direction that that car was traveling. And it seems to me, now the videos they put out, you couldn't tell what that car was. It was a white blur to me, pretty much. I mean, they were calling it a Hyundai Elantra pretty early on. Perhaps they did have other video. That's what I'm thinking. And as far as the DNA evidence, they recovered DNA evidence at the crime scene. Obviously, went into CODIS. There was no hit. Uh, this suspect doesn't have a criminal record, but they went into the genealogical um, uh, sites and they were able to come up with a familiar DNA and they connected it through, you know, go, doing all the investigative work. You connect the dots and they came up with the suspect. And then they did some surveillance on him, apparently is what's being reported as of today, uh, for a few days before the actual arrest is made. And I guess the, uh, you know, the investigation was really going in the right direction. It was building, they came up with, uh, you know, the DNA evidence, they were able to secure an arrest warrant, and they were able to get in there and, uh, and make the arrest.
0: You know, folks, uh, that's basically when Phil says connecting the dots, it's oversimplification, but it's so true. That's what we call it in law enforcement. That's what investigators call it. And it's so exciting when you connect the dots and you start getting the, pic- the picture as to what occurred. And that's that's why something so simple to say, you know, connect the dots. It's so true. Let me play a little bit more of this.
4: Yeah. And again, uh, Kelly, I'm glad that you mentioned the idea of system. He's not a forensic scientist. He has not been studying forensic science. Uh, There was an article that came out earlier today where it was conflating, I think, some of his studies with the study of forensic science. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's a studier of behavior. That's what he was going into, criminal behavior, all right? Forensic science and those things are not the same thing. So he's not gonna have the same skill set, say for instance, as somebody that would have worked in the forensic sciences. Uh, he might have an understanding, at least from a spectator stand, uh, point of view, from how crime scenes are processed, but he's not going to know everything, trust me, in this particular case. He is going to be um, limited in his knowledge of forensic science. He may have at- made attempts by virtue of what he's seen or witnessed or heard in the classroom to mask some behaviors. But I can almost promise you he's left some trace behind. That's how they've gotten their hands on him at this point. And that's how this tale is going to be told. Well, well I, I think that we're products of the environment, you know, in which we are introduced into. He has an interest, obviously, in the study of criminal behavior. Uh, you know, and the fact that he went to such a fine scholar as Catherine Ramsden to sit there and be in her class is not necessarily surprising. Um, again, uh, you can't. Uh, not you, but just in general, you can't conflate, you know, his his worldview with those of us that study behavior and criminal behavior and also forensic sciences. Uh, he just sought out the information just like any other accused might that has been accused of some kind of horrific crime. You're going to go and, and sit around and try to learn uh, what you can about how things, If you're if you're looking to defeat a lock, in 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 a a residence or something like that wouldn't it be cool if you could learn it from a locksmith or see what they do it's it's essentially the same thing but you know in very broad terms he's he's in a scholarly environment he's not in an applied environment uh where he is learning from uh point a to point b to to z about how the process necessarily works it's a very broad-banded kind of environment that he's in so the fact that he went there, he's a Pennsylvania resident, it's not too far away, um, is kind of interesting. I think what's more interesting to me at this point is why. Why Washington State? Fine school, but why, why did he choose to travel all the way across the country? What, was there someone else's feet? He was-
0: You know, there's so many of these things that are unanswered, and uh, Joseph Scott Morgan, really bright guy, He's asking questions that we're all asking right now in our minds, in the back of our mind. And he, What he is asking is, is this guy a serial killer? And what we explained last night, what a serial killer is, is if he's done another murder before this, this quadruple murder made him a serial killer. Uh, it's, it's two or more incidents with time in between. I think that's what Joseph Scott Morgan is asking. Is he a serial killer? Another really interesting thing is Phil and I, of course, I I did almost 27 years at the NYPD. Phil did 20, 21, 22 years. We studied criminality through experience. And what we noted a lot, many times, was that criminals learned a lot about their craft through going to prison. And talking to other criminals in prison and just hanging out with other criminals, speaking to other criminals, how do you do this? How do you get away with this? What do you do when you get arrested? All of those things. However, Brian Koberger, he choose to learn it through academia. And it seems that he was using what he learned through his studies to conduct maybe what he considered to be, the perfect crime, obviously it was not, but we're hearing now. And again, through unconfirmed sources, I want to, I can't wait till, uh, the police and the FBI. Well, it will be more likely the police release some of the crime scene information because it seems like we're getting reports that he was wearing gloves weeks after, after the murder. Why was he doing that? Was he covering up potentially cuts on his hands? Uh, mm-hmm. Why was he doing? Did he or did he think the police were on to him when he was trying to uh, protect his fingerprints from being lifted surreptitiously? I'll use that word again, but you know, if they have your DNA, they don't need your fingerprints,
2: Phil. Bill, I think uh, you're hitting the nail right on the head here. It would appear to me if he's wearing gloves, he either saw in the media, he knew he may have cut himself, he left blood at the scene. And we were talking about, you know, maybe uh, people should call on a tip of a person that perhaps showed up at work uh, a couple of days later uh, with cuts on their hands or was missing from work or different things like that. That would be the reason that perhaps he was wearing gloves. And I think that this uh, person that's on the video right now is making a great, great question. Why did he pick to go all the way across the country to Washington State to continue his education? Perhaps he wanted to go to that location where he knew he was going to commit a crime, become comfortable with the area. And then at some point, he's going to leave and go back to Pennsylvania. And a lot of the criminals uh, in the past have always thought that you know once you commit a crime in one location, if you go to another location... You know, there's no cross referencing. And that might take some time before you're caught up in the, uh, you know, uh, caught for the crime that you committed. So, again, we don't know what the state of mind was, why he went to that location. These are all great, great questions that I think uh, we would like to put to the investigators to try and find out the answers to those questions. Perhaps one day, perhaps uh, Brian himself may uh, may tell us the reasons that he did these things. You know, Phil, I
0: think what Joseph Scott Morgan is implying without saying it, he's saying basically he believes he potentially could be or is a serial killer. And once the police and the FBI, if they connect him to another murder, and again, of course, and I'll <clears throat> repeat this, he's innocent till proven guilty. Right now he's just accused, uh, but his DNA was found in the crime scene, Um Someone in the chat, Martha Woodworth, I'm going to just read this, Martha. I believe he's the person who skinned the poor little pet that got out of its pen a mile from the murder house. It might have been a practice killing and, in a sense, his calling card. Well, Martha, we don't have any um, proof that he did that, but we all know, if any of us that have studied serial killers, is that that is one of the traits that they show in their behavior, is that they kill animals. And that's a scary psychological trait. Did he do this specific dog you're referring to? That remains to be seen. But a uh, good point, Martha. Uh, I thought that I would raise that, Phil.
2: Yeah, I think that is a good point. And again, he comes from Pennsylvania, an area where there is a lot of hunting going on. Uh, There's a lot of sport, sporting, shooting and stuff like that. Uh, You know, so if you hunt an animal, obviously, uh, you're not going to just shoot it to leave it, you know, a carcass lying in the woods. A lot of times the animals are, you know, whether it be deer or rabbit, they're taken for food. Uh, So again, what was his childhood like? Was he exposed to Uh, hunting? Was he familiar with killing animals? Uh, I think he specifically chose the weapon that was used in this crime for a good reason. It, It inflicted maximum trauma to the victim's bodies. And I think that's another thing. Where did that knife come from? Did he purchase that knife where we can track it back to him? Did anyone in his circle of life see him with that knife? Did he show it off as a, uh, you know, look what I got? I mean, these are all the questions that have to be answered. Draga
0: Pro, I was accepted to uni 15 uh, minutes from home, but went to uni two hours from home. There's reasons why he went to that school that we don't know about. Good point. Look, we don't, of course... There's always reasons. I went to college at Buffalo State, which was eight hours from where I lived on Long Island. Why did I choose that? One of one of them was because it was a SUNY and I couldn't afford to go to a private college. Two was it had the program that I was looking for. So there were two reasons right away. But his may be much more nefarious than he needed to go to a, uh, you know, my reasons were go to a school that was State University of New York because it was cheap. And uh, it had this school had the program. So, yeah, we don't know. But what Joseph Scott Morgan is implying is that he may be a serial killer. And that may be why he chose this university. Uh, I'm going to play a little bit more of this. This is fascinating. And I think, you know, th- throughout this case, we've heard all, and I'll use the term because I know some of you people like it, some don't like it. I'm going to use the term talking head. There's been talking heads. From every damn uh, behavioral analysis class in FBI history coming on the TV, and some know more than others, and some hit this on the head, and some were far away. But uh, Joseph Scott Morgan seems to be on, on track with
4: this was seeking to sit out to learn more out there. Why so far away from Pennsylvania? There are a number of fine schools up in the area where he comes from, where he could have gotten the same education. I'm just wondering why he chose to go to Washington State. And you know, I think that the police are exploring a lot of that. Keep in mind, this was only his first, I think first semester of doctoral level studies at this point. So um, is there some kind of connection to the victims and his desire to want to go to Washington state. And I think that's something that these uh, investigators want to explore all the way down the line.
5: Thank you for watching, go to newsnationnow.com.
4: Sorry guys, I
0: wasn't as quick to the drawer as I uh, as I was. Billy,
2: um, really, we're talking heads, I think. Uh, we yeah,
0: yeah, we are, show. we're talking heads too. So if, if, if you folks find that as a disparaging remark, I'm disparaging yeah. myself. I'm using self-deprecating humor. There's another canonism also. Use the word deprecation, a self-deprecating humor. But it is somewhat fascinating as to why someone in the chat said, "Oh, maybe he got a scholarship." I yeah. Well, do do they give scholarships for PhDs? I don't know. Maybe don't they would give grant and aid, or you could get. Uh, aid but I don't know if they give scholarships I don't think for scholarships
2: a for a PhD I think yeah there's there's obviously different forms of aid and uh you know and loans and stuff like that but uh, listen it could be a nefarious reason or it could be something very simple that uh you know the the Person he wanted to study under was at that specific uh, college. So again, I, I think that's a great question. We really should uh, stay tuned and try and find out what the answer is going to be on that. But uh, you know, uh, the fact that we're talking about that he could be a serial killer initially when this case went down, I didn't think it was going in that direction. However, I've changed my opinion now, and I think there's a, a probably a, a large possibility that he may have killed before because we talked about it yesterday. You don't get on a ladder at the top; you get on at the bottom and work. You graduate up. Uh, Most people that study serial killers or any type of killers, uh, mass killers, there's usually uh, stuff that precedes going into that homicidal rage. So let's hope it's not that no one else was a victim of this uh, psychopath. But uh, it seems from what we know, uh, you know, research, that there's a good possibility that uh, that he may have killed before. And I would go out on a limb and say 100%. I think had he not been arrested, he was going to kill again.
0: Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell. And we like your comments. Please make comments, ask us questions. I try to read uh, as many comments. I can't always read every single one or respond to everyone, but... I always go on. I'm interested in them. And, you know, if I respond to one of your comments or make a comment on here that you don't find is, um, how should I put it, uh, flattering to what you said, sometimes I say it just for levity. And I'm not trying to put anyone down. I said something the other night and someone took umbrage to it. But I praised that person in a personal email. So please don't take umbrage at it. I, I, I think... As much as these are serious topics, we have to have humor in this show, too. There has to be levity, and uh, I don't mean to hurt anyone's feelings. I just like to say that out, outright. Uh, we also have a Patreon um, with three different levels, and you can see the folks in the green font. We have a YouTube channel memberships with five different le- uh, levels. Mary Moore, Ma, thank you so much for your uh, $10 super chat. Thank you. You say thanks for your service and insight. Thank you so much. Uh, it's really appreciated. You know, it's, we're not, um, how do I put it? We we don't have a crystal ball. What we have is knowledge based on experience of working murder cases and of having police careers. 27 years, 22 years with Phil NYPD, And we take great pride that we worked for what we consider to be the greatest police department in the world. And we don't want to, you know, stand on a soapbox and say, oh, the NYPD. But that's the way we feel. So some people take it as cockiness, but I take it as like, I'm proud that we both had careers with the NYPD. And we know how things are, are done and how things should be done. And sometimes when things aren't done correctly, we comment on that. And sometimes that's taken the wrong way. But that's our job. That's our job to say, oh, this was done right. We praised the hell out of the Moscow police when this re- arrest happened, and the FBI, and the Idaho State Police. We did criticize along the way also. But that's would this be a good show to listen to if we just praised everything the police did? No, then we'd be accused of just, you know, praising the police because we're the police, you know. And uh, I'm just telling you the way we feel and the way that we do things, the way we tell this story. Phil?
2: Yeah. About the comments. I love when I make a statement about something and Bill, you pointed it out. We're using our professional experience of almost 50 years between the two of us uh, being in law enforcement. Uh, You know, we all my adult life, all of your adult life, we've been involved in law enforcement. And when I make a statement about something, if somebody puts in a comment and they challenge what I say, I love that. I love lively debate. To me, it reminds me of being on the stand testifying and whether it be a uh, a murder case or any other case, and you get challenged by the, uh, the defense attorney. To me, I love to have that challenge because it's uh, something that I can expand on what I said and I could make a point. And when it comes to the comments and stuff, not perfect Bill's not perfect I'm not perfect we make uh opinions and we make statements based on our experience and sometimes we could be wrong but when we make a statement and somebody challenges we like to explain why we said what we said and why it makes sense so again that's what you get on police off the cuff real crime stories
0: Sarah Landwehr, I I wish I saw your comment I would love to uh put it up if you want to make it again I'll try to put it up there which she, she writes these creators keep missing my comment laugh out loud I, I if I see it, I'll put it up there. KCL, I tend to think this was his first murders. However, I absolutely believe he would have killed again. 100%. Yeah, KCL, I think there's no doubt of that. I'm I'm starting to feel, though, or think that he potentially could have killed before this. And I didn't think that in the beginning. I didn't think that this was the work of a serial killer. And I'm starting to think that there's a potential
6: that uh, this could have been a serial killer. Uh, Let's play a little of this tracking his return to Idaho. He was caught last week in Pennsylvania, seven weeks after the stabbings of those four college students. This is sources say that genealogical DNA was established, leading police to Mr. Koberger. Join us right now, forensics pathologist and Fox News contributor, Dr. Michael Bodden. Dr. Bodden, welcome back. Hi, good to see you. So, you know, it would be one thing if they went up to a suspect and said, hey, can you give us a swab? They didn't do that. Apparently, there was a lot of DNA all over that uh, that apartment building. Right. Uh, and they compared it to publicly available DNA. It sounds like somebody in his family did one of those 23andMe things or was in a government uh, law enforcement database and they tracked it down to him through them.
7: Yeah, th- that's a possibility. The only caution we should have is this is all unofficial information 100%. released on the internet, and once uh, he's gotten back to uh, Moscow from Pennsylvania, will extradited perhaps in a, today or tomorrow. Right. <clears throat> then the prosecutor in uh, in Idaho will be able to present to have a hearing on uh, the warrant that they uh, they have mm-hmm. and release the information uh, on which uh, uh, he uh, uh, his arrest is based right which might include DNA but in to do DNA he has to have left some DNA at the scene right and with all the blood there most 99 percent of it would probably be from the victims right whereas his DNA would only be there if He probably wore gloves or they would have had fingerprints and cutting himself because blood is slippery and when you cut a stable out of people you might cut yourself or if one of the victims had scratched him and had it under her fingernails so the dna is a possibility but the Elantra car, the 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 Hyundai car, mm-hmm. uh, may also be a uh, uh, important as because they followed the car. They, according to the internet, the the uh, and what's been released so far, the car left uh, Moscow, driven by his father, going to Pennsylvania right. for four days. Now they could have they had the DNA evidence while he was in uh, in uh, Idaho. They would have arrested him in sure. Idaho to, to uh, let them go for four days with uh, being uh, observed and then arresting him. And, and right. uh, so it would indicate there were other things besides DNA that were involved.
6: Right, exactly. And you're absolutely right. Uh, the DNA story is out there. I think the New York Post has it. They've spoken to anonymous police right. sources. So we have to wait until Folks,
0: what we predicted was that they were on his tail. All right. They had the genealogical. Um, connection through doing uh, genealogical DNA. However, when they're following him, they could, again, I'm going to use that word, they could surreptitiously get his DNA either from a cup, a can, a bottle, something he touched without him knowing about it, anything he dis- uh, discarded. Uh, they could follow him into a restaurant if he ate his food They could wait till he left and grab his food and get DNA off of that. That's collecting DNA surreptitiously. We spoke about the law last night with uh, Michael Geary that if you throw something out, you have no expectation of privacy. Therefore, the police don't need a warrant for that. So the reason I think they got the DNA that way was because in the crime scene, they have unidentified DNA that belongs to the perpetrator. If they could have gotten a real exemplar from a surreptitious collection of his DNA while they were following him, and and compared that DNA to the crime scene, boom, that's a better hit than even CODIS, right? It's a live DNA exemplar right to the hit of the unidentified DNA from the crime scene. That is how I think they may have initially gotten the genealogical hit, but to solidify that, I believe they would have collected his actual DNA. Sounds logical to me, Bill. Absolutely. Maria Fernandez, thank you for the 249 super sticker. Uh Pamela White, thank you for the $5 one, and Fremont Pathfinder, thank you so much for the 199 super sticker. Guys, this is um this is really a fascinating case because it it hits on all cylinders of investigation. The art the science of investigation. And it really is, you know, we can never lose sight of the fact that four young people lost their lives to, to an animal that did this to them. However, then we, when we step back and look at this investigation on how he was identified, what is the investigation like moving forward? And it's still a huge, huge investigation moving forward. The police are working on it. The FBI is working on it. Because could someone like this with a, a sharp attorney beat a case like this? And we talk about the science. The science is tough to thwart. But he's the attorney he has now is just for his extradition. When he goes back to Idaho, I don't know what the means are of his family. It doesn't seem like he's a legal aid attorney candidate. You pra- practically have to have no money to get a legal aid attorney. So it very well could be that his family hires a private attorney. So are they going to get some top hired gun from the from the state of Idaho that's a top attorney? That remains to be seen. But this case, they have to, again, ad nauseum, cross T's and dot I's and bring the strongest possible case, which includes – Not just the forensic evidence, but we talked about the perpology, and that's the study of the background of this perp. Every single thing he does, his education, the car he owns, which already came up in this investigation, people, his friends, his family, his relationships, his his bank account, his finances. How about his credit cards? Did he use a card to buy the knife that they can't find yet, the murder weapon? That would be one way to connect the dots with perhaps he used his card to buy the murder weapon. If they can find that, that's it's circumstantial evidence, but it's strong circumstantial
2: evidence. Phil. Absolutely, Billy. I mean, think about it. They're going to be able to determine what type of weapon was used on, uh, based on the, uh, you know, the crime scene. The, the, uh, the uh, coroner's, the medical examiner's is going to be able to tell uh, the length of the weapon, the width of the, the blade. Uh, they already described it as uh, some type of like a Rambo knife. So again, if he purchased a knife like that somewhere in, in, his, in his past and they can uh, narrow that down with a credit card receipt, I mean, that's circumstantial, but I think it's very, very powerful. And again, we still don't know if that knife is not going to be recovered sometime uh, in the future. It hasn't been recovered as of yet, but I would love to see it recovered. And I think that uh, moving forward, all the circumstantial evidence and all the different uh, pieces of DNA, they knew that they had the perpetrator's DNA from the crime scene early on, and they just had to connect the dots, and and they did that with the genealogy, and perhaps they did what you said, Bill. Perhaps they did recover his DNA from a discarded piece of garbage, or if they followed him and he threw out uh, a water bottle, a coffee cup, something that would have had his DNA, that could be the link that made them uh, able to uh, execute the arrest warrant.
0: Absolutely sassy but classy. Thank you so much for the 1999 super chat. Thank you. Good afternoon from Florida. Could you please tell me what your thoughts are in regards to what information law enforcement will share with us at the next Moscow Update? I think they're going to share very little with you still. I think they're going to start putting things out in dribs and drabs. And, you know, everyone always says, oh, the uh, indictment affidavit, the indictment information will tell us a lot. It's not going to tell you much. It really isn't. I think they're going to just release as little as possible. What we are all interested in, of course, number one, and sassy but classy, I'll speak for you too, we're all interested in motive. Why the hell did he do this? Why? What was the reason he did that? Every single person that follows this case wants to know motive. The second thing is we want to know the crime scene. What was the order of the killings? Why? How did he kill him? Who resisted? Was he stalking two of the girls? We want to know all of that. Where where did his rage come from? I still believe there's a lot of rage involved in this killing. Where did that rage come from? Phil, thoughts?
2: Well, I think uh, uh, although motive is not one of the uh, things that's required for a conviction at trial, it's going to be on everybody's mind and including the jury's mind. Um, I think the affidavit is going to reveal that there was a DNA match. I think that's almost a gimme that they'll probably put that in there. Like you said, they're not going to include all the evidence, but I think they're going to include, uh, saying that there was a DNA match from the crime scene to the perpetrator. Um, when we get to the point of, uh, you know, the trial in this case, there was a comment I want to bring up, Bill, that I just want to address it real quick. Um, it says, considering the coverage, how does the state find an unbiased jury pool. He seems to have already been convicted in the court of public opinion. True, but I think that uh, people don't understand when a jury is picked, jury selection, they go through each and every juror and they will ask them questions. Let's say we don't have a motive. They'll say, will you be able to come to a a conclusion based on the fact that we're not going to put a motive forward, even though uh, everybody would love to have it, The motive may not be there. Will you still be able to uh, rule on this case if we have enough evidence that the perpetrator was, in fact, the person responsible for the crime? There's extensive questioning when you do jury selection. And again, you have to put all your biases aside. And then a lot of times the uh, jurors, if they can't come to that uh, agreement, they will be uh, removed from the jury pool. And that's how a jury is picked. So it's difficult, but not impossible. You
0: know, one of the things I wanted to say, and of course, it's getting way ahead of ourselves, I would not be surprised whatsoever that a judge grants a change of venue for this, uh, if this case does go to trial. The reason being is that, look, this small town of Moscow, Idaho, the university is the centerpiece of this community. 2,000 people from the community work at that university. You think they can find an unbiased jury pool in this town. So I would not, I know it's getting ahead. There's so many things they have to do before that. I would think any defense attorney worth his salt, that would be one of the first things he asks is that I would like a change of venue. And I think because this also is a potential death penalty case, I think that a judge would grant this.
2: I agree with you, Billy, because don't forget, this is a very emotional case. This is four young college students that were slaughtered. So again, if you take a a jury pool from the area where this murder took place, perhaps you can find... Uh, one of the people knew these young kids or they had their own young children that are in college. It's going to be difficult, like I said, not impossible, but a granting of a change of venue in this case, perhaps that would uh, maybe uh, tap a jury pool where there'll be less emotion involved in wanting to put uh, a person in jail for the murders that were committed. Uh, I think that's going to be some of the things that the legal process is going to work its way through and, uh, decisions will be made. It'll be analyzed. It'll be, uh, argued on both sides. And, uh, again, I don't see it as a major problem in this case because, uh, like I said, you go through extensive questioning when you're a juror on a, on a homicide case, specifically a, a quadruple homicide case, and you have to be open-minded. You cannot go in there. Everyone is afforded, uh, you know, innocent until proven guilty by a court of law that's the standard we have in this country, and that's what will be expected of the jurors.
0: Uh, and thank you for the $2 super chat. Grat, EDU and criminology could be danger to society. Yes, absolutely. W- someone else said in the chat that his parents have gone bankrupt twice. They don't have a lot of money. Do they own that house? <laughs> They'll tell him to sell it or to take a mortgage out on the house for his defense, because that's what you'll need for a case like this. This is a trial that could last three to six months easily. And what else will defense attorneys want? They'll want private investigators to investigate this case. Also to try doubt. they try to create doubt beyond the reasonable doubt. That's how someone has to be convicted and a defense attorney's
6: job is to create doubt. Let's go back to Michael Bodden a little bit here. Uh, the indictment is unsealed. But one of the other stories that is floating around there is that uh, apparently somebody close to law enforcement has said that they looked at his cell phone data and they were able to synchronize his cell phone with the cell phones of the people who were murdered. It's, It's called geofencing. And essentially, they were in the same spots all over. Phil, I have to give us a
0: round of applause. We <laughs> said that on day one or day two, there's something called, he's acting like he invented it. There's something called geofencing right, that can right. pull up every single electronic device in a specific area at a specific time. It costs a fortune because law enforcement has to pay thousands of dollars per day to, for that information coming from those cell towers. But it's an incredible incredible technology
2: also billy i talked about it before we went on the air uh they can also Ping, they, they can go into his cell phone and the victim's cell phone and see if the cell phones were ever connected to the same cell tower at any time in the past. So that'll be important looking to see if he stalked these individuals. So if we have a self, uh, cell phone uh, pinging at uh, a cell tower and it's his and one of the victims or perhaps multiple victims, that would mean that they were in the same general area at the same time. That's all going to be part of the uh, further investigation that's going to be happening going forward
6: absolutely over town
7: yeah that would be all would be very important in uh, a trial but uh to see if that's enough evidence to make him the murderer but uh uh, what's going to be interesting first of all they got to make sure he doesn't uh, commit suicide so he'd be on suicide watch and going through his uh, his cell phone and other data to understand why he was tracking these three people. Yeah. You know, what, what caused him to pick these people out? He had this bizarre uh, research report from uh, the college in Pennsylvania that he was doing, you know, why interviewing criminals as to right. why they kill people and how they feel. So there are a lot of potential red flags for motive and for whether or not sure. it could have been prevented.
6: Well, uh, if he does... Uh is extradited tomorrow. We're going to find out more of what is in the document from the within prosecutor. a few
7: days that the prosecutor can release all that information in court. State
0: fascinating information. So we're apt tomorrow maybe to get some more information because tomorrow is his uh, extradition hearing. I wouldn't expect to get much from the extradition hearing. Uh, Southern mom, thank you. For the 999 Super Chat, his current lawyer told NBC that BK and his father will pull over twice for traffic stops in Indiana on a trip back to PA. Wonder if that was related to FBI trailing BK. Southern mom, it probably was, undoubtedly. The FBI's plugged in with local law enforcement. They could have, uh, through a cell phone call, uh, called uh, the radio car that was in that vicinity, or called the police station that covers that highway and said, please get a radio car out here and pull this car over. We How want about it.
2: putting a tracker on the car? That would might have been a ruse to put the well, tracker they, on. Well,
0: but you, Phil, you would need a warrant to do that. You, okay. You know, okay. so, yeah, well, if they, they could have gotten a warrant, but uh, I think that you could have someone pulled over uh, innocuously. Um, you know, the FBI could have seen some kind of traffic infraction and said, Would you pull this car over? And then they could explain it to the state police or the highway police, whatever police that pulled them all. Southern mom. Thank you. That's a great, uh, that's a great little tidbit of information.
2: Also, Billy uh, cops are wearing body worn cameras, perhaps uh, pull them over. They can get a, a, an updated look at him to see if they perhaps maybe look at his hands to see if there were some scars and things like that. Again, maybe it was just, uh, they were speeding. and got pulled over, but chances are that there was a a good chance that it was, uh, it was staged.
0: You know, 100%. It could have been staged. You know, I wanted to I, – I, this woman um, who was on Cuomo, and I have uh, played what she said a couple of times. She's one of the most brilliant uh, genealogists in the world, I would say. Uh, her name is CeCe Moore. And she explains pretty well um, to Chris Cuomo about what uh, the DNA process is. I just want to play a little bit, and it's not a long piece, but her name is CeCe Moore. She's one of the top uh, genetic genealogists in the world.
5: So it's very rare that we will find a close family member and certainly not the suspect in our genetic genealogy databases. So what we're looking for are people who share what we consider significant amounts of DNA, but it can be less than 1% of their DNA. If you share only 1% of your DNA, then you're likely third cousins with someone, which means you share your great great grandparents. And so we get a whole list of people that share segments of DNA with this unknown person we're trying to identify. And we can reverse engineer their family tree by who they're related to. So the only reason two people would share these significant stretches of DNA across their genome is if they have a common ancestor in their family tree. They have to have inherited that DNA from someone back in that tree. And so hopefully you'll get matches to different lines, their mother's side, their father's side. In some cases you get all four grandparents' lines and there's, We all have unique family trees, except for our full siblings. And so if you're able to put enough of those ancestors back in that tree and piece it together, that's gonna narrow it down to just one immediate family. Sometimes you can't get quite that far, so you might have to look at first cousins if you can only get to grandparents. But that's how we do it. We're not using close relatives in most of these cases. It's usually people who won't even know the suspect.
6: Understood. You still need a name, though. You need somewhere to start. So they have to have something that.
0: Getting the name is the other. That's part B of the investigation. He's talking about part A. Duty Ron is on the air. Duty Ron, thank you for the $10 super chat. Duty Ron says, great job, Bill and Phil. We said the cell forensics and the science would solve this case from early on. Duty Ron, thank you so much and thank you for your support. He's like a celebrity. He comes into the chat. and People are like Duty Runs in the chat. <laughs> like, oh my good god,
2: man, good man. <laughs>
0: he's a good man. but like, he's a celebrity on my site. You know, it's pretty good though. I I like that. I like that. So it's yeah, Phil. That's amazing to me. So they they track someone in the family tree, and then you put the tree together, the family tree, which is not so easy. She sped through all the investigation that that entails. But fascinating, fascinating. And that DNA, when it came out as a science, I think they said around 1986, I think the first identification utilizing DNA in New York City was 1997. And it was a serial killer by the name of Aaron Key. So even though it was around for 10 or 11 years, it took 11 years for the first use of it in New York City that actually identified a serial killer.
2: When DNA first became uh, uh, involved in law enforcement in my time on the police force, I think it was around the late eighties, early nineties, DNA would only be able to tell you if it was human blood or if it was, Not human blood, male or female. It was very, very vague. It wasn't as exact as it is now. But Bill, you hit the point. Think about it. They could take a droplet, a tiny little droplet of blood, throw it into a a database of one of these genealogy sites, and you're coming up with familiar DNA, which is connecting, you know, third cousins to the actual perpetrator. So it's really, really amazing. And when you think about that pool, there's probably several hundred people that fall into that category that have this same uh, familiar DNA. And then they narrow it down, narrow it down, narrow it down. And then you come up with someone even closer to the perpetrator. And once you're at that point, then you can narrow down and say, all right, well, we believe the perpetrator is in this age category to this age category. So you eliminate some people there. And then you're going to go for uh, male and female. If you think the perpetrator is male, so you'll eliminate all the females and on and on. And then you get closer and closer until you come up with that name. That's what uh, she was just explaining. Well, Phil,
0: even in regards to unidentified DNA, the unidentified DNA can tell us things like the race of the person, the sex of the person, sometimes the eye color, sometimes the hair color. Tell us many things about the potential perpetrator without specifically identifying the perpetrator. That is fascinating, and just in that in itself narrows down the suspect pool. You know, when you have an unidentified DNA, but all those things I just listed, hair color, eye color, race, sex, that eliminates a lot of questions. I mean, how many people said in this investigation, oh, this could be a woman? And mostly, you know, we all said almost categorically, no, there's almost no chance that it's a woman because first of all, right out of the box, we know eighty to eighty five percent of all murders are done with a knife are done by males. Right away. So right away you have that statistic on your side. So there goes that process. thing called statistics. Yeah, well, it's a process of elimination. I want to play a little bit of this here and we'll uh, discuss it.
3: 28-year-old Brian Koberger is being held without bail at the Monroe County Jail in Pennsylvania on those murder charges. He was arrested at his parents' home on Friday morning just before 2 a.m. Moscow police say they seized a 2015 white Elantra but have offered few other details. Koberger faces four counts of first-degree murder and one count of felony burglary and will have to be extradited to Idaho to face charges for the murders of Kaylee Gonsalves, Maddie Mogan, Ethan Chapin, and Zana Karnodal. Police executed a search warrant at Koberger's apartment in Pullman, Washington, Friday. Koberger was a Ph.D. student at Washington State University studying criminal justice and criminology. Washington State University is about 10 miles from Moscow, Idaho, where those murders were committed on November 13th. A spokesperson for the university said Koberger had just completed his first semester in the program. Before WSU, Koberger was a master's student at DeSales University in Pennsylvania, and one of his professors was Dr. Katherine Ramsland. She teaches classes in serial killers, she's a forensic psychologist, and she has actually appeared on some of Law and Crime's podcasts, including Sidebar and Cocktails and Cocktails. This is what she told Sean Sticks Larkin
1: about her work earlier this year. I actually consult on death investigations. I do police trainings. Um, I talk about profiling and psychological autopsy, which is really about suicidology. (laughs) So, that's, I have a whole class just in that. And I have a class in dangerous minds that I teach at the undergraduate and graduate level. And that is really about extreme offenders, which is mass murderers, spree killers, and serial killers.
0: So, Phil, he took her course. He -hmm. took her course. So, I mean, what does that tell
2: you? He was studying uh, the behavior of uh, serial killers, obviously. Of himself.
1: Primarily what I do most of my work on and most of uh, what the students want from me, that class fills it quickly actually spoke with a student who was
3: in that serial killer class with Brian Koberger, and he told me that Koberger often interrupted Dr. Ramsland, talking over her as if he knew more about the subject matter than she did. Now, in that interview with Sean Sticks-Larkin, Dr. Ramsland talked a little bit more about how she became interested in studying serial
1: killers. It chose me more than I chose it, but I love it. I think it's really interesting, and I'm constantly finding New ideas, new motivations. You know, we have formulas related to serial killers. But, for example, I spent five years talking with Dennis Rader, the BTK serial killer, because he does—he defies many of the formulas. So I thought that was interesting. I wanted to know more about that. And I think I'm always looking for the outliers uh, rather than the ones that fit the mold. I want to see the ones that don't fit the mold and how did they get to be the way they are. And in psychology, as opposed to criminology, we're looking at the cases, the individual details of someone's life story and and the trajectory, basically. Whereas in criminology, you're looking more at groups and trends and statistics and things like that. I'm much more interested in just the case details. So that's why I like talking to people who are willing to explore how they got to be the way they are. And, you know, I can spend many hours doing that. Choose it. I'm really happy. That's
0: pretty fascinating. British Chippy, thank you for the 899 Super Chat. Bill and Phil, the DNA found was obviously his blood, right? As there was no sexual assault, and many people have been in and around that home on the regular. Love you. Thank you so much, British Chippy. Uh, I can't I can't attest that it was 100% blood. It would make sense that it was probably blood. However, he could have left skin cells. Uh, he could have his skin cells underneath the fingernails of one of the victims who resisted. He could have left sweat. He could have left fa- hairs and fibers, that type of thing. So we don't know if specifically... Uh, the DNA was obtained from blood DNA. We don't, we're not clear with that. They haven't released that. Will they at some point release that? Yes, but so far they have not released that.
2: Dr. Michael Boden had made a comment in one of the interviews he did early on that if one of the victims actually touched the perpetrator's face or any of his skin, when they bagged their hands, touch DNA could have been recovered from uh, the victim's hands. And that would have been obviously unknown. And again, we talk about the DNA. Uh, just think about that. You can touch something and leave your DNA. Uh, if a person touches your face or your skin, your DNA is now on their hands. So again, it's really, really fascinating, this DNA technology. We leave it everywhere and don't even realize it. Uh, like you said, Bill, a droplet of sweat Uh, a follicle of hair, or we talked about the fingernails uh, of the victims, perhaps uh, skin from scratching at the, uh, at the perpetrator. Any one of these could be, if not all of them, a part of the DNA match that's in this case.
0: Absolutely. Mikey, thanks for the $5 super chat.
2: Thank you, Mike.
0: Smoking gun, silent witness, just one dog hair in that Elantra from Kaylee's dog and case closed. Mikey, the problem is with that. And, and I don't, I don't disagree with you, but, he took that car down, or he took that car across the country to Pennsylvania on, I believe, December 7th. So the murders were on November 13th. He absolutely cleaned that car. There's no doubt in my mind. But having said that, no one ever gets all the evidence out of a car, even when they think they do. You know, Did he clean it with bleach? Did he clean it with alcohol? It was probably vacuumed numerous times. So the chance of a dog hair, it could happen. It could happen. But I'm pretty sure he probably cleaned the car.
2: Billy, I want to talk about a case that I had in Coney Island some number of years ago where a prostitute was uh, slashed and stabbed. She was able to escape from the vehicle, and then we caught the guy about three weeks later. He had changed. When she was uh, cut, she was bleeding, and he told her to make the blood go on the floor of the car, not on the seats. However, he changed the carpeting on the car. He cut it out, and he replaced the carpeting. I went into the car and on the side of the seat, almost underneath the seat, I found a small stain of blood. I cut it out, sent it to the lab. Sure enough, it was a match to the prostitute. And we were able to uh, charge the perpetrator with the crime of, you know, assault on this uh, on this young woman. And again, uh, like you said, perhaps he did clean the car, but maybe he missed something. Let's hope and pray that the crime scene that's done on that vehicle does turn up some type of evidence that will link him to this crime. And then we have the apartment in Washington. I think that that's another thing. One little droplet of one of the victims' blood or some piece of DNA evidence or something that links him to that apartment could be in the uh, apartment that he stayed at in uh, off-campus housing in Washington.
0: Absolutely. Peter, thank you for the $5 super chat. What confuses me is that he didn't take into account cell phones and DNA catching him if he's so smart. You know, many people have said um, he he probably didn't have his cell phone with him that night. I don't know if that's true or not. He may not be that sophisticated to realize that his cell phone is going to ping on all the cell sites in the vicinity. He may have had his cell phone and turned it off. If he turned it off, again, it's not going to ping those cell sites. DNA. Maybe he thought he could do this murder and not leave his DNA at the crime scene. You know, a lot of these guys think they're smarter than law enforcement. And it's proven time after time
2: that, in fact, they are not. You know what, Billy? I think from him studying criminology and criminal justice and studying serial killers, perhaps he didn't. I don't think he went out of his way to get caught, but I think he may have had in his mindset, that at some point he is going to get caught, especially after the murder. Like you said, he didn't count on leaving DNA probably didn't do it on purpose, but once he knew that he did, and once he heard that they were looking for this white vehicle, he knew it was just a matter of time. That's what I feel in my heart about this case. And a lot of times these serial killers, if interviews are done at them, they knew they were going to get caught, but the compulsion to kill is there. They have to satisfy this compulsion. And after doing it, he was probably uh, uh, euphoric for a while. And I think that That's probably why he was going to kill again. That feeling that you get afterwards, he satisfied that need to kill, that bloodlust. And again, the euphoria takes over. Uh, He's probably uh, coming down off of that and thinking about his next kill. That's why I really believe he was going to kill again.
0: Phil, you know, we had spoken numerous times also. They also did a warrant on his apartment near the University of Washington. And what we said, there's a good possibility because he has all the traits of a serial killer that he took a trophy or a souvenir. And that could be anything. It could be one of the girls article of clothing, a piece of the hair. They serial killers and murderers like mass murderers, like him want to take a souvenir or what they consider a trophy so that at another time they can relive the excitement of the murders. So, they're going over each and every one of these warrants with a fine tooth comb and the FBI and the Moscow police, they know this. They know that what they're looking for They and you know, a warrant sometimes has to be very specific, but in a case like this, a judge may write up a warrant that's way out here. Like I'm going to give a lot of leeway because you know, he may even list that anything that may belong to the girls or one of the crime victims, you can put that in the warrant, but What is that? What is anything that could belong to one of the victims? Gives a lot of leeway, a lot of, and a warrant, as I said, it's not a fishing expedition. Sometimes it has to be very specific as to what law enforcement is allowed to look for and what they're allowed to take.
2: Billy, I would uh, definitely be searching to see if this perpetrator had some type of a storage facility. Perhaps, like you said, there may be other victims that he killed. There may be other trophies. Uh, The weapon. You know, th- these are the types of searches that I'm sure that the law enforcement officers are conducting. Now, if he has some type of a storage facility, go in there with a warrant, see if the uh, anything can be recovered in there. Those are all the things that uh, they'll be looking at with regard to the perpology, which we talk about. Uh, maybe it's not even that. Maybe there's a shed in the back of the house, or maybe uh, some type of uh, a container that uh, you know only he has access to. All of that stuff, I'm sure, is being done. And again, you made a good point. If there's a trophy, perhaps a piece of jewelry, jewelry, an article of clothing, something that he's going to take from the scene that he can relive, like you said, Billy, he can relive the experience and try to regain that feeling that he had when he was killing those victims. Uh, I know it sounds crazy and it is psychopathic, but this is what we know from the study of serial killers.
0: Hannah Kinn, you know, uh, that's why we're not, you know, we're not uh, mind readers. These guys don't know for sure if he was tracked by his phone. No, we don't know because we don't know if he brought his phone with him or if he brought it with him and had it off. We don't know that yet. But guess who does know? The FBI and the Moscow police know that. They're saying he could have been. A smart person would put some auto streaming content on phone and leave it at home. That's very possible. But. If he's like me or like any number of you guys out there, I almost feel naked these days if I don't have my phone on me. Uh, And I've done that before. I've gotten in the car, oh, my phone, and I run back into the house. Am I the only one that does that? I don't know. And he may not have been thinking of that. You know, yeah, he's smart. Is he that smart? Does he realize that law enforcement tracks your every movement by your phone? He should, but sometimes in haste or people can forget the most simplistic things.
2: Bill, I want to make a point about the cell phone being off. People don't realize it, but I saw on NBC News, there was a story about how if you shut off your phone, NBC or Fox, I forget which one it was, but if you shut off your phone, there's still things emitting from your cell phone that will give location. It's not continual like it is when you have it on, but your your cell phone, even off, and all the latest smartphones will still send a signal sometimes. So again, whether or not he had his phone, we don't know. Yes, that is true. But if he did, it was given a roadmap of where he traveled and what he did.
0: Absolutely. Supergirl, thanks for the 499 Super Chat. Two universities in Washington State, Washington State University in Pullman and University of Washington, UW in Seattle. Love your channel. Thank you so much, Supergirl. Thank you very That's much. That's very kind of you. You know, Let me just play the rest of this, uh, what we were doing before we got –
3: Ramsland also spoke with Cocktails and Cocktails about talking with serial killers face-to-face and through letters.
4: I assume in your career, you've come face-to-face
2: with a lot of these gentlemen, correct?
1: Yeah. I w- not, not, I'm not like, you can't just go into prisons and come face-to-face with them. But yeah, I've talked to them on the phone, through correspondence, sometimes in prison.
4: Have you ever gotten that just like, this is... Just pure evil. This guy is just—he's there's nothing. I have a hard time
1: with the word evil. Okay, gotcha. All right, because it's kind of a religious context. Um, Okay. Do I think? Have I?
0: I I don't have a problem with evil. Some of these people are evil, you know. Something I have no problem at all. It's a a overeducated person (laughs) that hasn't hasn't rolled around with these people in the street. I'll call them evil.
1: By, come face to face with psychopaths. Absolutely. The coldness, the lack of remorse, definitely. Um, so some people, yeah, some people call that evil, but we are finding that it might very well be a brain disorder. Huh. Neuroscience is giving us a lot of information about the brains of psychopaths and they are, they do process things differently. They have very shallow emotional connections. Um, is it something they're born with? If so, That's a different story. As you can
3: imagine, we want to talk to Dr. Ramsland about her experience teaching Brian Koberger. We reached out to her and she said that she is not making any statements at this time. That's
0: Fascinating. It really is fascinating. I just want to remind everyone, we've seen uh, a lot of people during this case. Linda Cosma, thank you so much for your $10 Super Chat. And Linda says, thank you for your insight. Thank you so much, Linda. It's very much appreciated. I just want to remind everyone that although behavioral analysis and behavioral analysts are very interesting and they have taken courses in psychology, some are PhDs, some took the FBI course at Quantico, some of these um, behavioral analysts are FBI agents that some of them taught the course at Quantico, but realize it is not An exact science? It's totally not an exact science. And when people speak in absolutes, that's when I turn off listening to them. Because when you have a science that's not an exact science, and you you're speaking as if it's an exact science, you're incorrect. We and I always point to the Beltway Sniper case. That was one of the worst predictions I've ever heard in my life. Completely they predicted wrong. the killer was a male white in his thirties and this but and everything. He probably didn't have to get lunch money to go to school, you know, all of these crazy things. And we all know what it turned out to be was a male black 17 and a male black, I believe 35. That were the two conspirators in the beltway snipers. So there's a perfect example. People also, uh, um, point to the, um, the, the, the bomber, the, uh, they, they, the, Kuzin, what was his name? Kaczynski? Ted
2: Kaczynski. Ted Kaczynski.
0: Yeah. They pointed to him the and had they bomber. had no clue on him either. His brother turned him in. Yeah. But you, you listen to a lot of profiles. We figured out the bomb. No, you didn't. His brother called up and I'm not saying it wasn't good police work. That information was put out there and money talks, a big reward that his own brother turned him in. so, the profile for that was not on target either. So I'm not saying this to disparage the FBI. I'm just saying that the science of profiling and of behavioral analysis isn't an exact science. That's my only point.
2: 100%, Billy. I want to make two points about the video you just played. Uh She was talking about uh, evil. now. Till you've met evil, and you and I have both met evil, I'm not talking about when you have a perpetrator for a homicide where it was, let's say, a robbery gone bad or some type of a dispute and someone's drunk and they kill somebody. I'm talking about serial killers, and I've had the occasion to be in the room when a serial killer – killer was confessing to me. And I knew I was in the room with the devil. I saw evil face to face. So I do have uh, experience with evil. I'm sure you do too, Bill. Uh, the other thing uh, point I wanted to make was one of the students that was in school with this perpetrator, Brian, um, said that he would talk over the teacher as uh, talking like he had more knowledge. That leads me to believe that he may have done other killings before this killing that we're talking about, the quadruple homicide of these Idaho students, because he was so narcissistic that he would actually talk like he knew more about it than the teacher that was teaching it. That leads me to believe he may have done this before.
0: Good point. Absolutely. Uh, You know something, there's so many things that we don't know about this case and it is fascinating. And as we go along, Phil, I just want you to uh, do
2: this quick commercial break. Joe has got tremendous experience in the criminal field, whether it be federal, state, or civil. Great supporter of police-off-the-cuff real crime stories.
0: Absolutely. You know, folks, so what's going on with this case now, of course, is tomorrow is the uh, extradition hearing. He has an attorney for the extradition, probably the attorney, for, almost positively, the attorney for the extradition will not be the same attorney that he has for the um but if he does go to trial, he may not, he may choose to plead. Wouldn't it be great if he chooses to plead guilty? Cause then he'll have to tell his story as to what actually happened. So then he'll be extradited. I think he's going to waive extradition. He'll be brought back to Idaho and then the wheels of justice will move slowly, but they'll be moving forward. Uh, folks. I want to thank everyone that came by this afternoon. I mean, it's amazing that, uh, All you guys are interested in following this case. And uh, it is an unbelievably interesting case. And uh, we've been following it since day one. And I think we've been uh, pretty accurate with our assessments of what was going to happen, what's going on. We praised, again, we criticized to the Moscow police, but we praised them when this arrest was made, as well as the FBI and as well as the Idaho State Police and Fugitive Enforcement Division, all the law enforcement agencies that took part in the successful investigation and arrest of Brian Koberger. Phil, final, final thoughts,
2: final words. I don't think we're going to get a lot of tomorrow's ex, a lot out of tomorrow's extradition hearing. It's going to be a formality that he's going to waive extradition to Idaho based on a, a criminal complaint that was brought against him. Once he makes a court appearance in Idaho, that's when I think we will have some little bits of information. Uh, I think they're going to say that there was DNA connecting him to the murder scene, Uh, that's his DNA. And I think uh, maybe whatever little bit of uh, evidence, they're not going to put everything out there. Again, we have to keep thoughts and prayers for the families of these victims. Uh, They're not going to get closure. They're getting some justice at this point. Let's hope the wheels of justice continue. We're going to stay on this case. Everyone's interested in it. It's uh, emotional. Uh, Us as law enforcement professionals, we're very interested in it because uh, we want to be part of it, so to speak, and we want to see how everything played out. Uh, It's just got tremendous interest from myself and from Bill and all law enforcement offices uh, that are involved in this type of stuff. Again, let's wait and see what comes out tomorrow and in the days going forward. And uh, we'll be right on top of it.
0: Folks. Thank you. Have a, a happy new year and uh, be safe and God bless.
2: Stay safe, everyone.
1: One episode just saying enough.